I'm Jesse. And I'm Ben. And this is Mystery Flight, a podcast about spirit, culture, and shenanigans. Friends. We've known each other for a bit now, five years or so. I'm a professionally trained American historian, 20th century. Ben? I am a classically trained, not uh, 21st century pastor. And we are kind of going to be talking at the intersection of, I think, where our faith meets what we see as true in the world and how we're kind of processing those things. So think for me, I want to do this podcast to be able to say something that's just really true in conversation with others. What about you, Jesse? Um, you know, I've always enjoyed having conversations with you um, about culture, what's going on in the world, how that intersects, intersects sex with the CTS, uh, <laughs> how, of, of what we, we'll get to the sex later, uh, uh, intersects with what we believe uh, and the kind of things that we're interested in. Um, and so, yeah, we, we just wanted to kind of talk through that. And I think, you know, ultimately this is just for you and I really to kind of work out some bigger ideas that are running around in our heads at, at any given week. Totally. So what are we drinking this week, Jesse? Uh, this week we've got some Humalupalicious. Uh, I believe I pronounced that correctly. And, uh, a little bit of Four Roses, right? Small batch, yeah. Small batch bourbon. Yep. Taste the stuff. Try and- not to get a little, uh out of control with this but so the mystery flight the reason we're called mystery flight uh when we were conceiving this podcast it's because we're bad at names that's true <laughs> that's accurate uh my uh fantasy soccer team is called default nate that's how awesome i am mm-hmm. um but so we uh we were at a where were we you, you, there was this bar that you oh yeah What's where did we go what was that place it's some brew pub in old town Okay, so a brew, brew pub in Old Town, Lansing. Uh, Lansing, for those of you who don't know, it was uh, recently featured in Don't Look Up on uh, Netflix. We're all proud yeah, of but Spartans they, for that. Dude, they didn't film. No, they not didn't a film bit of it is in Michigan dude, as far as I, I can so tell. I was so ticked. Yeah. Anyway. I know, I'm all like, it's Leo DiCaprio. He's like from <laughs> Michigan State and, you know. Uh, yeah, I should Thanks, say Michigan Leo. State is where I work um, in the, as a... Academic specialist in the history department there, and director of a digital humanities organization. So, Spartans, we both kind of bleed green. Ben's an adopted Spartan. Mm-hmm. I actually gave them way too much money uh, for all three of my degrees. Uh, which and now is, you give them your loyalty and love. So, as far as they know, yeah, something, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, President but, um, Stanley. Don't so anyway, listen. we just totally like tangent it, but uh, we called it mystery flight because that's literally what we were drinking when we started talking about the podcast. Yeah. Right? The, this brew pub has a, a mystery flight. Um, but uh, a lot of what we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's deep, it's mysterious. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to be flying all over the place. Absolutely. It's going to be great. Absolutely. Um, so what kind of subjects and themes uh, are we going to be talking about, Ben? I mean, I think um, we are living in really interesting times. And like, there's a way in which that the kind of religious landscape in America is really shifting. I mean, stuff is tearing at the seams right now. Like after the Trump presidency, after the Obama presidency, there's been 
massive bifurcations. Like the, the centers of gravity, uh, particularly in evangelical circles, but in many others, are completely shifting. I was reading an article today about just floods of ministers leaving the church, um, like how conspiracy theories have become some of the new uh, dogmas that heresy is uh, meted against. And it's just like so much is shifting right now. So I think uh, for us in our own faith journeys within that space, we're just trying to do a lot of discerning, trying a lot of doing a lot of thinking for our, our own kind of how we follow Jesus faithfully in this stuff. And I think we just want something true, right? At least mm-hmm. this is for me. This is my landscape. Right, right, right. But yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, so for me, right, a lot of a lot of similar motivations. So we have very different backgrounds. Ben's obviously mm-hmm. from uh, England. Uh, I grew up in the evangelical heartland of America, Wheaton, Illinois. Used to be. But this is one of the shifting things, right? It's the Colorado Wheaton, Springs now, Wheaton right? Wheaton used to be. Well, I would say maybe Liberty University. Do you know what I mean? Really? Like Wheaton College is now, you know, old school evangelical where they cared about stuff. And now Liberty University is like new evangelical where it's all about politics and how do we twist up, you know, yeah. fold up I our think I feel like you're kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, sorry. I'm no, 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 it's great story. because there's a book actually that I'm reading right now called Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah. Which is about... Kristen Kobe's uh, demands, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, history uh, professor over at Calvin which is also a kind of a bastion of uh, at least reformed evangelicalism. Totally. Um, and man, I'm telling you, I'm like reading that book. It's like, it, this is like my family tree. I'm like watching my past just unfold before me. So much starts to make sense Dude. about the world that I grew up in. I, uh, funny story. Uh, my neighbor, we had new neighbors. They just moved in and they're, they're doing some work on it. So they're kind of in the house, kind of not because they have a baby that's due like in three weeks. And so they're kind of staying at a okay. hotel but anyway, so his name's Jay. He came out to the mailbox. And I don't know about you, but like when, when you meet somebody for the first time, like it's, it's a little bit awkward. But do, do you ever find yourself just like, blah, blah, like just <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you way too much information for this oh, first, totally. you know, yeah. right? So Jay, poor Jay comes out. He's like, hey, I'm Jay. And I'm like, hey, I'm Jesse. I'm your neighbor. Uh, you know, I work at Michigan. He's like, yeah, I work at Michigan State. I'm like, fantastic. I'm like, I'm just going to our neighbor John's house. He's also at Michigan State. And he's like, oh, small neighborhood. And then he, um, he noticed that I was wearing a, a Cubs hat. Uh, and he's like, oh, yeah, Cubs fan. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I grew up in uh, Wheaton, Illinois. And he's like, oh, I had some friends at Wheaton to Wheaton College. And, you know, I don't know what it, I, it, was, it was like. It was like PTSD, you know. Um, yes. And so I, I said to him something that I've, that I've said to actually a couple of people. I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of a recovering evangelical, mm. you know, in the sense that um, evangelicalism for, for me from, from the what I grew up in. And this is really, again, to get back to that book, Jesus yeah. and John Wayne, it's really kind of laid out in that, the history of that uh, movement. It's just, it did a number on me um, growing up in that space um, and did a number on my, on my faith. And I, I, I literally, you know, walked away from it. Like I, it, So I'm like this recovering evangelical, right? So I say this to my poor new neighbor and he's just like, I'm Jay. What's, what's your name again? I don't know. But, um, so yeah, anyway, we'll be talking about uh, our faith journeys, most certainly. Ours are very different. Uh, however, mm. we ended up in the same church, which has been kind of nice. Yeah, it's been great. Um, culture, uh, definitely American culture. 
and from a historical perspective, like yeah, yeah, m- that I learned so much that you just aren't taught in a place like Wheaton. Yeah, um, that that changed my perspective on on a lot of things. So, um, and you know, as you can probably tell, we're we're silly at times, <laughs> and so there's going to be shenanigans. Um, Always shenanigans. I think one of the first themes that we're going to dig into, uh, and for this podcast, the focus is going to be on looking at um, basically the, the title, if we're going to title this at least tentatively right now, is Love Your Sister as Yourself, right? There's the Love Your Brother as Yourself is the whole thing. But one of the, the issues with evangelicalism, at least that I find, and I feel like I'm talking a whole lot, so I'm going to step back in a minute here, but is that it's, it's, it's very male-dominated, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and depending on where you're from, it's patriarchy, it's complementarianism, Right. There's a bunch of different ways that you can look at what that means. But um, Ben's just writing me a note. And, and, and the, the awesomest so we've just part about that. Something is that Jesse is never going to be able to read my writing. That's true. So it, if I was going to guess, it says snip the great thing. <laughs> so which is talking about male castration in a time of uh, navigating gender oppression. Anyway, there's this book <laughs> that came out, The Making of Biblical Womanhood uh, by Beth Allison Barr. She's a history mm-hmm. professor at Baylor University. Yes. Um, Another evangelical institution. Yeah. Um, Wheaton of the South. And, and so actually, and if you are in evangelical circles right now, she's making a ton of waves. Mm-hmm. Um, along with Kristen's book, Uh, Jesus and John Wang, lots of carryover in that, both talking about patriarchy and evangelicalism and how it bleeds into uh, American culture or vice versa. Um, And then there's this other podcast that my wife and I are listening to um, that I don't have the name up in front of me. I'll bring it up at another point. But anyway, this is a big hot button issue right now. Um, this, this, This questioning of what does biblical womanhood look like? What does biblical manhood look like? Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of pushing back and forth happening within the evangelical larger world, oh. right? Um, and so I think for this first podcast, we, we thought it would be a good idea to kind of dig into this. It's been covered. I mean, and if you're in these circles, you've probably heard podcasts uh, on this, either from a guy named Lisey Camp and his Tokens podcast, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um Gombus, Timothy Gombus is a guy over mm-hmm. in Grand Rapids has talked about uh, these books as well. Um, Kevin DeYoung has written a review of this book. Yeah. Um, and he's kind of become a mover and a shaker. Totally. Uh, he was one of the featured Young. Gospel Coalition writers, you know. Well, he made, like, he was at the pointy end of the spear with the Young Restless and Reform movement that kind of tried to recapture a neo-reformed wave among young Protestant pastors in some ways, it's kind of neo-Puritan, really. But, um, yeah, so he's a, he's an interesting chap, for sure. But, yeah, I mean, there's been a ton of press around this stuff. And what yeah. I think, um, let's transition into the Love Your Sister as Yourself mm. section itself. And uh, as a book, I found this really, um, a really interesting book. I think Beth Allison Barr weaves together really well her own personal story um, which, you know, some could easily take aim at as a weakness, right? That while she just had a, a traumatic experience where her pastor was fired from a church for 
It was her husband who was the pastor. Oh, sorry, her husband. Yeah. What did I just say? Her pastor. Right. No, her husband was the pastor, I'm sorry. Um, was fired from the church for questioning some of these things. Um, but it, I love that she gives just a really incarnational kind of um, an honest space where she, she works out this stuff. But what she does, what, what impressed me the most was like, she just marshals a lot of or some really crucial insights from various biblical scholars, various theologians, various, various historical stuff that's more her wheelhouse, um, and brings it all together in one volume. And it's, it's quite a devastating volume. I remember seeing Scott McKnight, who's written a lot about um, kind of from within some of these sectors of the church, about um, uh, 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 like uh, women's subordination and egalitarianism and kind of liberating women into ministry. And he said that this book was going to be quite devastating, and it really has. It's got a lot of force behind it because mm-hmm. she does such a good job of bringing together insights from Lucy Pepiat talking about um, kind of fresh readings of uh, some of the difficult passages in First Corinthians and Second Timothy, and um, she brings together uh, some really great stuff from uh, Beverly Roberts Caventer, who does some amazing work out of... Um, Romans 16 and just some really good insights across the board with some other stuff too. So, so for me as like a historian, yeah, right. So I identify with when she taps into that, like this is the medieval history mm-hmm. of this, right. I tap into that, but you've mentioned a couple of things, right. So you mentioned those two uh, women, which are, I believe theologians, right. Yeah. Um, it might be helpful for you to kind of expand on, on who they are a little bit, just a little bit as totally. far as the people who know they are. And then also, you mentioned that it was uh, an incarnational work. And I think that's a really profound and, and maybe like fleshed that out a little bit. What, do you, what does that mean for folks who that doesn't just come as a, as a natural Definitely. analogy? I mean, it, it, so it, makes, it paints the target on your back when you use your story as part of this. I think what she does quite devastatingly at the end, because she even brings some Me Too movement stuff into this mm. as well. Mm-hmm is she, she's pointing out, hey, these aren't just ideas, folks. This isn't just about us being uh, really pure about our ideas. This is people's lives. This is the church who is living and made of, up of people. And, um, and from that place of embracing her own particularity and sort of weakness in some ways, um, I think it actually mirrors sort of Jesus' ministry where he isn't afraid to take on flesh and dwell among us to make some really devastating points about how broken we are. Mm. You know, he's not just making some kind of steel armor, but he's he's afraid of the he's not afraid of the risk of kind of um, becoming quite particular and human. So we get through that rubric. You know, she so she pulls together a lot of different stuff, um, and this is from memory. But so Lucy Pepiat is uh, from the UK. She uh, is married to a pastor, and uh, she helps run um, WTC, uh, which is a really kind of innovative approach to theological training. She is a theologian who's done some cool work in uh, New Testament stuff. And uh, in 1 Corinthians, I want to say 11, um, there are some arguments that are made about kind of Paul saying women should be silent in church. And she, she she's made the interesting claim because it's a difficult passage, right? Everyone takes it as a difficult passage 
because Paul in some parts of 1 Corinthians is saying, hey, when women speak, they need to be covering their heads, for example. But then in this section, he's saying women shouldn't speak. And so she makes the, the kind of interesting insight, hey, maybe um, when women speak, like maybe what Paul is doing is quoting his opponents here, um, which is very common. She marshals a lot of really good evidence for that. And, what you know, back in the day, the ancients would not use quotation marks. So you'd kind of have to know the arguments. And because he's writing a letter, the people he's writing to would know what he's talking about. So perhaps Paul isn't saying this. Perhaps Paul is quoting his opponents. Someone like Beverly Roberts Goventa. So um, Lucy Pepiat's more kind of English evangelical, maybe. Hmm. Um, How do you distinguish that? Like, is there a clear... Totally. Kind of distinguishing between English versus American. I mean, I, I think I'm shared. very, yeah. you know, buried in the American tradition. But so what is what is English evangelicalism look like? Or how do a, would an American audience distinguish that? So English evangelical, I think, is just, it's historically been a little less political, although it's changing all the time like ours is too over here in America. Um, English evangelical has been less afraid of tackling things like poverty more recently in social issues. And often um, very conservative Christians in the UK, particularly like Scotland, aren't afraid of voting uh, to the left side of the spectrum. And, you know, a lot of like very famous, very conservative Scottish Presbyterians are quite socialist because they take Jesus's word seriously from the New Testament. So um, you just dropped a bomb there, but carry on. Yeah. So anyway, so it just it's it's just kind of there's a different constellation of things, right? The, sure. the dynamics and right. the forces are different. So politically, it's quite different. But um, so she would be a bit more con- like broadly conservative. I think she has some charismatic in her too. She's a really great thinker, though. She's she's really cool. Um, look her up. Uh, and she's been writing a ton lately. But Beverly Roberts Gaventa is like an old school theologian, well, a biblical scholar, actually. She's more of a feminist, but she's an excellent scholar. She really is. Uh, everyone takes her theology, uh, her works very seriously from across the spectrum. And so she's done some really cool work looking at, like, um, the place of um, the likes of Phoebe likely being the one to do deliver the letter to the Romans. And um, she's done some really cool work around like Junior and just understanding kind of like some of the, the hidden characters. So so often, right, we, we treat the Bible like um, we just look for the obvious verses uh, like uh, first, Ti- first Timothy 2 or Jesus wept. <laughs> but like <laughs> on women, we're looking for the, you know, women should not teach or preach or hold authority over a man in First Timothy 2. And we think, well, that's pretty obvious. So mm-hmm. that's probably what it should be. But um, people like Beverly Gaventa have helped many others see like, well, let's actually look at um, what Jesus did and what Paul did. Let's not ignore the lists of names that you get at the beginning and the ends of his letters. Because it see, a lot of this stuff really cuts against some of the things he's saying. So if his practice cuts against what we think he's saying, maybe we need to revisit what we think he's saying. So um, she does an amazing job with like Romans 16. Uh, there's some really cool stuff there. Um, and then, and so I think Beth Allison Barges brings a lot of this stuff together. She brings it to bear on some of the most difficult texts. And it becomes quite devastating when she then maps out and kind of she plays the uh, Jesus Duke card pretty well, where she turns it around and says, you know, maybe 
um, what has been faithful Christian practice is not actually a kind of a patriarchal women submitting to men model, but maybe uh, we see throughout church history and at its most faithful, uh, the church has actually been elevating women's roles throughout its history. Uh, mm. and, and that comes straight from Jesus, who, as you, you know, is born of a woman who, uh, you know, in, in the Gospel of Mark, right, the women are always the faithful ones. The men are always getting stuff wrong. Mary at his feet, right? Mary like at his feet, yeah, just like a disciple. And Nijay Gupta, actually, who's not mm-hmm. in this, has some really good stuff on that, um, who's a biblical scholar. Um, and just uh, like the way that the women are the ones who stick around at Jesus' crucifixion when the men leave, and the women are the ones who find Jesus first um, right, that's at really the huge. resurrection, which is massive. Yeah. And then the, the spirit falls on women with men. And so mm-hmm. it just, anyway, New Testament trajectories, I think she just does an incredible job of just pulling all that stuff together way better than I did in this last rambly five minutes or whatever it's been. Yeah. Um, no, 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 this has been excellent. This has been great. You, you, Go ahead. You, you definitely answered what I was asking. Um, you know, and I find it really interesting, right? So as a historian, you know, you go through your training and, you know, part of the whole grad school thing is, is just endless reading, right? Yeah. And what you figure out uh, as a history grad student is most, if not all, history monographs, that's what they call history books, right, in, in academia, that there's a formula, Right. Like, you can get away with reading the introduction, the conclusion, and the first paragraph and last paragraph of every chapter, and you're going to get the, the gist of the book, right? It, it's very formulaic. Uh, and I think one of the things that is really great about uh, Beth Allison Barr's book is she breaks that up uh, mm. a bit. She, you know, she like you had said, right, it's incarnational. She puts herself into this text very uh, overtly, right? And so it doesn't read as... A classical, you know, history monograph, right? Mm. And so some of the pushback, right, is that, you know, and it's one of those things where, um, you know, women are often kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, just, you know, not taken seriously. Yeah. Right? It's, it's like, oh, they're emotional or they're this, that, or they don't have the same level of rationality of men or the same level of intellect of men or whatever. Right? And so there are some real skin-deep folks who had their egos bruised who read the style of this text and they're like, wow, well, you know, this is just, this isn't history, right? This is a woman who's <laughs> cherry-picking things to make it come across that way. Yeah. Um, and what I found interesting in Kevin DeYoung's review of this book, right? Yeah. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor. Mm-hmm. And, and then he goes at lengths to critique her history uh, writing, which I thought, as a historian, I thought was really bold if not foolhardy um <laughs> but it, it's because that it comes from that instinct of of denigrating the the intellectual capacity or or, or uh, legitimacy of, mm. of of a woman's contribution right um and 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 to be frank right her the style right plays into that right but she readily admits that you know i was fortunate enough um i was actually turned on to this book by by my wife yeah and um I was fortunate she signed up for uh, uh, like a, a, a Zoom seminar that was uh, Beth Allison Barr, Kristen Cobas Dumez, 
And uh, this this woman, Sheila, and I can't remember her name, and my wife, when she hears this podcast, she's going to beat me for it. I literally listened you to her podcast today. You didn't tell me about this? Uh, it's fantastic. Hold on. You know what? I'm just going to no, pull it up real quick. No, about this webinar thing. What did I miss out uh, on? Well, I mean, it was still when I was just kind of like figuring stuff out. You know, I wasn't really fully aware of, of uh, uh, what's going on. But uh, all right. Yeah. So her name is uh, Sheila, Sheila Gregory, um, mm-hmm. and she has a podcast called Bear Marriage, uh, and she wrote uh, a book, which... Uh, a friend of ours just gave you, right? The Great Sex Rescue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's about trying to rescue that. the notion of sexuality in evangelical culture and stuff. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. anyway, it was her, Beth Allison Barr, and Kristen all in the same, like, little Zoom webinar. Wow. For, like, two, three hours. It was fantastic, right? Um, and and uh, Beth Allison Barr was very, we're coming, like, I, I, I had to make an intentional choice to put myself into this text. Mm. Right? She knew that this isn't how you typically write a historical monograph, right? This is trying to do something different, trying to bring her experience as a woman growing up in, and not just evangelical culture, right? This is Texas, Southern Baptist, like, yeah. tough, right, for, for, for women in terms of their place of legitimacy within church leadership and whatnot. And her and her husband were youth group leaders together. Uh, and one of the problems they had was that like, she wasn't allowed to teach high school boys yeah. because of the authority of men over women, right? Yeah. And so there's there's her personal experience married with her historical research in, in medieval church history uh, where she sees women being fully accepted as mm-hmm. people of faith who are preaching, teaching, you know, carrying out revivals and, and being accepted by the church culture of these various spaces where there are, right? Um, so it is very much a, a drawing on her expertise as a historian of that era, but it also has that personal element because she's weaving those things together. Totally. And from my perspective, that makes it all the stronger, mm. right? All the much stronger. I mean, in some ways, she's tapping into that tradition that you get from, like, Augustine's Confessions, where, like, mm. back in the day, they yeah. would write whole theological works that were part memoir, I mean, part literal confessions or prayers or whatever, and like, and not being afraid to lay bare your own weakness in a manner that illuminates what's true and good. And so, I th- I agree. I think it only makes it more devastating. Even though, uh, and it means that like, you, if you're gonna, and maybe this is why Kevin DeYoung responded to it this way. But like, if you're gonna respond to her story. You, you have to tread lightly. You have to recognize it's someone's life on the other side of this story. It's not just, you know, a, an argument over how do you translate the Greek word kephale in Ephesians 5, right? It's not like abstract like that. It's uh, how do you, you know, what parts of my story are legitimate such that I view my identity this way? You know, it's, it's huge stuff. And so maybe Kevin DeYoung felt safer coming back at her not, Saying your story's all wrong and you're just an emotional woman, but like just a quick yeah, question. Unfortunately, I, I wish that were true, and I, I would say I, I haven't I'd love read to his, Kevin uh, the, his, the benefit his, of the doubt, yeah. but Kevin's not here. It's true. Sorry, um, Kevin. Right. So, um, Kevin. Um, <laughs> but so that's actually one of the most unfortunate parts of his review. Mm. Um, and it's something that those women actually talked about in that webinar, right? They brought this up, right? Oh, so did they mention his in particular or just generally? Oh, him very specifically, oh, wow. Wow. right? So I'm going to read you just one section 
from his review, Please. right? Um, that just kind of it it it's icky, man. It just feels icky, mm. you know. Um, but so so, right? She in in the last chapter of the book, she's very vulnerable, and she shares how some personal experiences, um, right, demonstrated to her how this culture of patriarchy is 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 not just not historically consistent but it's also traumatic and, and yeah. damaging to yeah. women in the in the church right and so she talks about that and then what de young says about this is quote bar acknowledges that this experience with her boyfriend along with the experience of her husband's firing quote frames how i think about complementarianism today these quote unquote traumatic experiences traumatic sorry experiences mean that she is quote-unquote scarred and will always carry the scars. That's from page 204 of her book. So there's a lot of quoting, right? He's quoting that this is a traumatic experience for her. And that's just like, he's, he's casting doubt on the notion of, of the veracity of what she's saying, right? Of her personal experience. But he goes on to say, those sympathetic to Barr's perspective will likely resonate with the personal narrative considering it one more reason to dismantle patriarchy once and for all. And this is where it gets icky. Mm. Others, however, might be curious to know if there is another side to these stories. And he quotes, he puts in parentheses, Proverbs eighteen seventeen, And I'll look at that in a second. And more importantly, might wonder whether the author's scars get in the way of giving complementarianism a fair hearing. And so the, vo- the verse that he quotes, Proverbs, says this, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Well, fortunately, so, she's a woman, so that doesn't apply to her. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. But so he cherry-picks scripture, basically, to undermine sure. and, and basically wipe out the veracity of her personal testimony, saying, well, it seem, it's, it's not even like he's saying there's two, he doesn't leave it at there's two sides to a story. It, the verse itself, right, says... The first person might seem right until the second person comes and gives their, their point yeah, of view. So he's sure. basically saying, like, she's probably wrong, mm-hmm. right? She probably misinterpreted this. She was probably emotional or she mm-hmm. was probably assuming something. Boys will be boys. All of these poison kind of, like, get-out-of-jail-free cards yeah. for, for men. Which is, um, a, which is a strange argument from silence in some ways. Not yeah. in the typical sense, but in the sense that, like... There's no evidence to the contrary, so the evidence that hasn't been stated is, could well be better. So it probably is because she's scarred. Left it out, yeah. Because sure. she's scarred, you know. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, for me, like, it intersects with my own story because I grew up very complementarian. And, um, but I was like seeing holes in that, uh, like the conduct of Jesus and Paul. Um, for a long time and then later my mom ended up becoming a pastor now I I trans I, like my story my thinking changed before that but seeing her experience has only crystallized that because um, again it's all interest it's just an interesting thought experiment and it's abstract right but when you see real lives mm. and real ministries being turned on or off by um, the often quite emotional readings of men, um, 
I love that you said emotional because that's it was intentional. Women, right? Yeah, brilliant. Well, Carry on. I'm, I'm a genius, guys. No, um, it's it's like it's just it's problematic because I've had those emotional readings, like. I've got myself hyped up into certainty when I haven't had it. And, and once you just give a fair hearing to the other side, I feel like, like mine is all, like my experience is the mirror image of what Kevin DeYoung is uh, kind of casting aspersions about there, you know, like that if only you hear the other side, you know, like I did hear the other side, it didn't yeah. change me, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, and I think what's, what, his review in particular kind of pokes at here, which I think would be good for us to talk about because we actually fit this bill really well, right, is the notion of how do we, how do we understand history uh, as a discipline or a practice yeah, yeah, and yeah, theology yeah, yeah. working together. This podcast in general with you and me is, is really useful because it's me and a, a, you know, a pastor, a theologian, whatever, doing this work. Um, but but that marriage of how do we understand that? And I think that's what's really important about this book. Yeah. And Kristen Kobe's Demuse's book, it's it's both of those things. And I, I just totally butchered her name, didn't I? I do every you, time. You just gave me a nice little <laughs> grin there. Um, well, and apparently it's like Kobe's Demuse or something. Deme- yeah. And like anyway, poor, Kristen, poor lady. if you ever end up listening to this, uh, you probably you're shouldn't. fantastic scholar. I respect you, <laughs> and I apologize for slaughtering your name. Um, but so that's so so how do we do that, right? So let's let's just yeah. kind of sit in this for a minute. How do we approach the the coming together of history and theology when we're trying to understand, like you said from the beginning of this, the truth of a thing? Exactly. What I what I thought was a, a real strength of the book is how she synthesizes those things, right? Like she talks about theology uh, while owning up to its contingency within history, and she speaks about history theologically and in the in the interplay of those two things is is huge so for example right um one of the huge issues where she pulls her jesus juke is pointing out uh, and this was a big thing you know six years ago now the way that um a lot of the complementarian arguments uh were kind of claiming to be you know the eternal reading the objective reading of these scriptures and um, they, like, ultimately pivoted on reading their own arguments back into the structure of the Trinity, saying that Jesus is eternally subordinate to God the Father, mm. um, which was a really big claim. Bruce Ware, in particular, was famous for it, along with Wayne Grudem. And uh, that caused a crisis in the kind of theological well, because ac- it's academy. Heresy. Yeah, because it's heresy. Yeah, and I mean, so let's, just, knows, let's just stamp that as well, it is, absolutely right? Absolutely heresy. Because it's heresy. Yeah. Yeah. And so she points out using some things like that, that like um, the stakes are high. And actually, like, you, if you understood better the history of these ideas, you would be able to recognize their theology much better. Because it's not like this stuff is new. And in actual fact, right, it was the complementarians who are pretending to be objective and not being influenced by, you know, a feminist culture or something like that, who are instead being blindly influenced by, uh, they were being blind to the way they're being influenced by a patriarchal culture and found themselves on the wrong wrong side of Christian orthodoxy. And so, like, finding ways 
to, to name the contingency of your ideas, because the church has been working this stuff out for 2,000 years. Right. Like, if we can map ourselves honestly and say, um, we recognize this, this time in history, we recognize these women who have had important roles, we recognize the way in which um, virginity was viewed really differently in the Middle Ages. There's some great stuff right. on that in this book. Yes. Or, um, you know, the way that women were viewed as the kind of sexually aggressive ones in the Middle Ages, whereas mm-hmm. today we view men as the more sexually aggressive ones. Right. Like, there's just some really interesting and helpful things that when historical we add the context, historical yeah. context to yeah. our theological assumptions, they get much sharper. Mm. And likewise, uh, and maybe you can speak to this a bit better, like when you add your theology to your reading of history, you can perhaps read that a little bit more insightfully too. I'm, I'm looking at Jesse to kind of <laughs> pick up my thought and I'm not sure if I'm just no no it's good I think um, no it's really interesting I think uh, one thing that I think is really important that that most people don't really probably get right so the average churchgoer right the lay person as we yeah. as we call them which I there were air quotes I don't even understand that yeah there were air quotes there. <laughs> um, the average churchgoer right they they go to church they hear what their pastor says uh, if 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 you buy into your church, I mean, let's let's be perfectly honest, right? You go to a church that you buy into it, right? You buy into either the message that's coming, the the way, the format in which the message is coming, right? I mean, there's a reason mega churches are are fantastic. I mean, they're great shows, man. Yeah, great programs. You know, I had some time where I was working for the youth group at Willow Creek, and I, I can't tell you how weird it is to play worship songs for five thousand kids with <laughs> the gear that like Def Leppard gets at like. Oh, you know, an arena. It's it's mind blowing. Um, but so you you go to this place, you go to this church, and 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 these people are teaching you, and you take whatever they're saying. You well, this is this is the word of God. This yeah. is this is the interpretation of that, whatever that is. Right now, if you can step outside of that, we understand that well. There is just a crap ton of of denominations. Yeah. Right. Of of ways of understanding theology, of understanding scripture, of understanding how we live out our faith, right? Methodist, Baptist, you know, Presbyterian, you know, Bible church, you know, more air quotes there. Um, <laughs> you know, all of these things that, that have, over the course of the 20th century, been kind of grouped under this larger tent called evangelicalism, Yeah. at least particularly in America. Um, but what's, what's striking is, is, is I bet you if, you if you took a survey, and maybe this is a project that we, that we should earnestly look to do, but if you took a survey of average churchgoers, um, you know, I bet the vast majority of them wouldn't realize that, that the theology that they're getting mm. is something that was formed within the last hundred years, right? With the birth of yeah. fundamentalism uh, the, and, and the revivals from that, right? Mm-hmm. And then the evangelicalism that... That, that grew in the United States and was really kind of hit its 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 peak with Billy Graham yeah. uh, in in the communist you know Cold War uh, era right and and you know all of a sudden we're fighting yeah. this holy war against an economic system that doesn't make sense to capitalists you know um, <laughs> but that's the theology that we've been yeah. given right and yeah. all of this like hyper masculine militant expression of it especially like recent like Duck Dynasty like for crying out loud right yeah. Like that was a cultural expression that, that, that said like, this is evangelicalism now. It's about guns. It's about boys. It's about, right. I mean, it's, it's about it's, American identity too. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, How to be a good citizen who's free, but also 
a vision of godly manliness. Right, and, and this pushback against all of the things about Jesus, right, that are playing so, there in the text, like the turning the cheek. Like, Jesus didn't turn the cheek. Jesus came with a sword, yeah. right, ready to just beat down his enemy, right? There's this notion of this, like, hyper-militant masculine type of a thing that it found its fullest expression, I would say, between the 1980s and now in America, Definitely. anyway. Yeah. Um, but those those average folks, they aren't going to see that that's a relatively new expression yeah. of theological understanding. Definitely. And not see that there is, you know, 1,400 years, no, sorry, 1,900 years mm-hmm. of church history, you know, back Plus. to Christ before that, mm-hmm. that is very fluid. And, and it, not yeah, right. in, in ways that just like theology doesn't matter and you can just say whatever you want. I get that. But it's, it's, it's working out your faith and fear and trembling over the course of time through different church fathers and those kinds of things. And, and exactly. there it is. I just, that, that Freudian slip is absolutely perfect, right? What? Church fathers. Well, totally. Right? Yeah. Because the, only the church fathers mm-hmm. have the license to, you know, authenticate so, our belief. Yeah, there was a great work um, maybe four years ago now. Lynn Coick and um, Amy Brown Hughes did a book on women in the early church that's really insightful, talking about the likes of um, Thecla and um, oh, some other ladies, they escaped my head. But talking about like their really crucial, 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 crucial um, impact on the early church and on the early church fathers. Um, and so, yeah, like we, we need to recover some of this stuff because like you said, and I think you touched on this, like because we recognize the contingency of our moment, it doesn't mean that like we just slide into relativism like, oh, everything, you know, people think all sorts of things so we can think whatever the hell we want. But it's, it's recognize we got to be honest about our moment in time, about the thoughts that we have. We got to map them so that we can understand more fully uh, the full ramifications of what it means to be faithful in this moment, right? It's not about just being like, hey, you know what? Um, complementarianism is relatively new, so we can be worldly feminists without consequence. Like, that's not the argument at all. It's just that, like, in actual fact, the, the through line throughout the history of the church um, is a very different narrative from the way it often is portrayed by complementarians. You know, it's, mm. it's not like as cut and dried as it's often made out to be. And we've got to be honest, you know, if we're to be faithful in our moment, and I'm repeating myself now, but I think it's a really important point because people freak out once you start to poke holes in their sense of certainty, like this is, you know, straight from the Bible into my veins through my preacher mm-hmm. type mentality. Um, like people get really nervous, but I think the kindest thing and the most important thing for us to do as a church is learn how to tell the truth again right now. You know, we're in a moment where, um, you know, a lot of the modern uh, kind of, like the postmodern stuff, right, talks about masters, masters of suspicion who are like always teaching us to look for the power play behind any truth claims and like, we got to learn as Christians how to stop playing a game where like every single um, thing that we say that we believe is true is, is a power play of some kind, but instead we can just learn how to 
embody the truth the way that Jesus did, right? The, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So. Yeah, and as a uh, as from my background, right, as a historian and whatnot, like so, it's all about. I teach my students look at the context in which something was written and how that shapes that testimony in that time. Yeah. Right. So, for example, one of the things that we look at in my African American history class is slave narratives, and there are these interviews that were given in the 1930s mm. where former slaves were talking about their experience, but they're giving these interviews to white men in the South in the 1930s. Yeah. And so you think about what's in their head as they're relaying this. Of course, they're they're going to present a softer experience because they don't want to upset these people who, in the 1930s, quite frankly, are still lynching African Americans. Yeah. You know, like it's like it's like it's no big deal, right? I mean, so that affects the way in which the story is told, and we have to to look into that context so we can say, like, okay, wait a minute. You know, they're they're saying that their slave experience wasn't all that bad. Yeah. But they're telling this story in a context in which there's probably a whole lot of anxiety about how they say what they say and what they say it, right? You know what I mean? And they're also old at this point in the game, right? I mean, they're, they're, so they're, they're removed from the harshness of that experience. And so there Definitely. might be some nostalgia yep. that looks back into that, right? Um, one of the things that, that strikes me, right, is uh, in, when I started doing some, some studying of the Old Testament in the last, over COVID, really, over the, over the um, thanks to uh, my pastor, Ben uh, Rose, about what am uh, I, what am I Walter Brugman. On, on the hook for? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, but what's interesting, right, is you, you even look at the Old Testament and the stories that are written here, right? There's, we, we, we know now, as we're analyzing, that there's different sources that's compiling this text. And, yeah. and that a lot of it is written in a, in a period in which the nation of Israel is actually in exile in Babylon. And so they're telling the story of, of who they are as a people, how they got there and what their relationship to God is. And they're, they're trying to, to give people who have nothing. They've lost their land. They've lost their temple. They've lost their identity as a yeah. people. They're trying to give that back to them so that when they eventually do get back into the land, right, they have a sense of who we are. Yeah. But there's, in that text, right, there's there's different contributions. Like there's the priestly tradition, right? And so you can read this, and when you understand that, you can say like, oh, there's a whole lot here about the the mechanics of how we conduct, you know, the liturgy or the worship or that kind of a thing. And there's stuff that's, that's clearly written from a, a priestly perspective by priests, you know, within that context. And then there's the Deuteronomic tradition and there's, there's all these different voices, different genres, poetry, yeah. like op, yeah. you know, apocalyptic literature, right? But we've been trained in 20th century fundamentalist Bible inerrancy type of culture, which is shifting, right? So I don't want to say that that's just broad brush how everybody sees it. Sure. But we've been trained that like this is, this is this, the straight history of, the world, mm-hmm. starting with Genesis, right, yeah. straight through to Revelation, and, and 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 that's exactly how everything played out, word for word, and that's just, frankly, that's just not possible. Yeah. Uh, that's just not how texts are created. I get the whole, like, the Bible is inspired and all of that, and, and that's really important, and I'm not trying to, like, mm-hmm. create waves, but as a historian, I look at this, and I also see that texts were written in context by specific people with specific, you know, life experiences that shape the way they interpret whatever that inspiration from God is and the way that they're going to transmit it to people for a specific purpose to those people in a specific time. Yeah. And when we treat 
these things that were written to ancient people by ancient people in, a, in an ancient time as if it was written to us in the 21st century. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're losing it. It, it, totally. it. it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and that's an important insight because we have to be honest, even though it feels weird for us as Christians. Like, we have to be honest that the Bible isn't written to us. Right. We have to acknowledge the gulf, you know, the best case 2,000 year gulf for parts of the New Testament, the Old Testament, much longer than that. Right. And, and recognize, hey, it's not written to us. It may be for us because of canonization and all of that profoundly important stuff. Right. But, um, but it's not to us. And so we have to position ourselves differently, perhaps, in relation to it. I think, like, so this is a pilot episode for us. We're just trying to figure stuff out. It makes me curious about, uh, and I'm off script here. We're, ski, we're skiing off piste. Um, makes me curious about our own commitments and our own um, perspectives coming into this. You know, we mentioned some of the shifting, sh- shifting shans, shifting sands of um, evangelicalism earlier. Uh, and it's complex for anyone to map themselves against that right now. But like, for us trying to talk, in many ways, we're trying to sift through some of these narratives, right? And figure out what is true and how, like, what we can affirm and what we should question and all the rest of it. Like, how are we processing relative to all these big shifts? Like, even this book, like, some people will be suspicious of our perspective on this. Uh, and not that R means monolithic, we agree on everything because we don't, mm-hmm. um, but just kind of our collective perspective. What are we not owning up to in this moment in terms of our commitments? Mm. Is a question that I have for myself and for, for you, not in a... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, go ahead, I don't, I don't want to interrupt you. No, you're fine, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm sighing as well. Like for me, we collectively I think... Sighed. For me, I'm in a moment in my life where um, I've come face-to-face with the damage that a male-dominated culture produces in the personal life of men. Mm. Uh, And that's something that I'm working through, right? And one of the ways that I understand this better, one of the ways that I try and work through this is by prioritizing, at least for a time, the voices of women and trying to say, all right, so how do I better understand women as full, you know, intelligent, emotional, creative beings on the same level as men and not, and and try and try and look at, interrogate and understand the biases that I grew up with in this very, yeah. I mean, frankly, patriarchal, complementarianism, whatever you want to call it, evangelical culture, that tends to disregard the voices of women. Totally. And that's b- saying it nicely. Yeah. Right? Um, and this but, book really struck me yeah. as, as like, you know, you need to reevaluate that which with you grew up. Yeah, totally. Believe in, you know. What I hear, like something I hear, and I want to feed this back to you, mm-hmm. is that like in a more patriarchal world, it's not just that women are under, like there's a great little John Perkins move, right, that like 
that slavery meant that black people were, were chained to something and that was white people. Like, white people are enslaved by slavery too, just mm-hmm. in different ways. Yeah, well done. Like, patriarch, patriarchy does the same thing where it's like, it's not just that women are emotional and inferior, but it's that men can't then name and see their wounds transformed in the same way. Do you know what I mean? Uh, There's a captivity to our wounds that we can have as men that I think uh, is only reinforced by a patriarchy that says, as a man, you have to somehow be objective. You have to be... uh, You can't be... Well, let's go to... Emotional You have to be above reproach. You have to be... Right, the leader of the house. You have to be the leader of the church, the leader of the country, yeah. the leader of, right? There's people there's, submit to you. You don't submit. To you know, quite frankly, my wife is yeah. smarter than me on so many different levels, and our family would crash and burn if it wasn't for the gifts of organization and, frankly, leadership that she, that she imbibes. Right. I mean, yeah. so it's like, um, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a it's a crazy thing. I mean, and there's so many different levels in which. Um, men uh, not only discount women but actually have poisoned views of them to the to yeah. a degree right where yeah. it's it's uh, let's let's be frank right American culture is excellent at just distilling women down to being objects of uh, for for men to to benefit from right yeah I mean look at yeah. any of the advertisements at, yeah. at any medium you choose right it's all about sexy women. And it's all about men who, frankly, they don't have to look good or not, but they're going <laughs> to drink beer. You know, it's that Michelin Webb commercial, right? Men, drink beer and shave because you're already awesome, <laughs> right? Uh, Michelin Webb is a, like a, a British, British comedy thing. duo thing. I, but I felt that in my heart. I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you felt that. I actually showed that to my classes. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's, so there's, a, so. There's something really important to that because. Like, I think a lot of the double down when it comes to male complementarianism has been a reaction to, to, to a landscape that in our country is, is radically changing when it comes to, to gender roles. Mm-hmm. And it's been to say that men are everything that women aren't. Men are objective, whereas women are subjective. Men are rational, where women are emotional. Mm-hmm. You know, men don't have to try with their appearance whereas women do <laughs> you know, all this stuff so stupid. which is so yeah, stupid yeah. and that's a bit more flippant but you know what I mean but there's been a double down in kind of ho- trying to hold on to something that we think we've had but in actual fact right it like we, we have to be honest and recognize like um, our healing doesn't come in this moment from captivity to past to the past or to the 1950s or whatever but like but by embracing the way of jesus mm-hmm. who um i appreciate sarah coakley who's a really important she's she is probably considered like a, a feminist theologian but she's she's really profound um and i don't want that but to be there because i think there's a lot of really good feminists out there but it's it's complicated for people to hear that word so you know Anyway, but she talks about how, like, we can't escape the fact that Jesus incarnated as a man. But at the same time, like, we need to find a way to view that redemptively, you know. 
and like my masculinity, the way that it's performed in our culture, I find it deeply toxic for me. Um, it is not the way of Jesus. It's not a healthy way. Like I want to find a way as a man to be a man in a manner that reflects Jesus's taking on of that image bearing. Um, that isn't kind of tied to some supposed gender norm that we've all had for forever, but like is is truly being transformed. Like uh, I guess for me, like a lot of this moment comes down to Matthew twenty three, where Jesus talks about with his woes to the Pharisees that um, they're very happy to lay up these heavy burdens, but they refuse to lift a finger to help anyone carry them. And like, I feel like that's so much of our posturing culture right now, whether it's gender issues or it's broader sexual issues or frankly, like financial issues or whatever, like we are the ones who like to have it all together and we refuse to lift a finger. And I think we've got to start doing our theology in the reverse way, where we, we, we have something at stake, right? Where we are contingent, where we um, have some skin in the game, where we could be wrong, where we could be undone by the conclusions of something, but that we trust it in such a way that we're not just submitting to, to the will of the crowd, but we're submitting to being really radically faithful to Jesus and trusting that any wounds that he'd inflict would be part of us being crucified with him so that, so that we could be resurrected with him, you know. Anyway, I'm preaching too much, so you Not at all. save us all from, Amen. My, from my voice. Amen. Yeah. No, I think that's really important, and I think that, you know, there's, um, there's so much goodness there. Um, I think we're getting close to, to wrapping up. We here. are, yes. Um, and I think that's, that's really... Uh, a nice profound way to kind of get there um, if you don't mind I want to read a selection of something I wrote that I think is germane to this yeah uh, and we'll go out on this I'm being a little vulnerable on this uh, to date only Ben and my wife have heard this I'm not going to read all of it uh, I'm going to pick it up in the middle um, but uh, so this is a, just a kind of a meditation on men uh, and women uh, in our culture right um, this is the legacy we pass to our sons, our little boys. And this is the legacy, the abuse, and the bondage that we pass on to our daughters, our little girls. It starts with abuse or conditioning, but it continues with conscious choice. It's bullshit to say that we can't help ourselves, that we're wired a certain way, that boys will be boys, that we're all conscious men with choice. We have to own it. We need to get angry at it. We need to tear this down. There's a reckoning coming. If God is good, if God is righteous, women will inherit the earth. Men deserve to be exiled to Babylon, to be sold into slavery, to face the fiery furnace of the false gods we have created. If God is good, there is grace, but there is also judgment. Israel was exiled before repentance. Jonah was swallowed by the whale. The lesson of Scripture is that if you don't repent and turn your hearts and minds to God, He will take everything away until there is nothing but the light of truth shining brightly on the ways of the wicked. We are whitewashed tombs, broods of vipers who build and maintain dens of iniquity. Reach down into the pit, grab your brother by the arm, and lift him up alongside of you, and together we will sing a new song. How long to sing this song?
It must be subconscious, at times conscious, a fix, a hit, a forbidden fruit. Therein lies the knowledge of good and evil. And we've already, always, already scapegoated Eve, who was taken out of man. The mothers of all creation who might not have fallen had she been made from sterner stuff. The ribs encase the heart. For out of the heart of man comes that which would cause him to stumble. And every time he stumbles, he grabs a hold of that apple with conscious choice. Every time he blames the woman for his sin, he does so with conscious choice. Is it any wonder that God was forced to scatter man to flood creation, wiping clean the face of the earth, to send forces to tear down man's kingdoms, and to send him into exile, to bring the precious gift of his son to a woman without the help or the seed of broken man. That's all I've got. Damn. I should have just read that. Next time we'll talk about sports and beer. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Mystery Flight. Yeah. I'm Jesse. This is Ben. This is an overly long pilot, which may be edited down for better consumption, but uh, hopefully this gives you the gist of the kind of things that we want to do. Amen to that. I'm kind of low-key devastated by your uh, incredible meditation there. I'm kind of low-key devastated by your just incredible-ness. See, that go vague, so... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. We love you all. Peace out. Peace, love, dope.